Yeah, so this week uh, I was talking to Anna McKay, who's at the women's re- retreat today, uh, along with a lot of women from our church. And I was asking Anna, were you named after Anna the prophetess? Because I don't know if you were here in July. Uh, Anna McKay is actually seeking ordination within our denomination. So as a part of that process, we, we had her preach on James chapter 4. It was a really good sermon in July, July 11th. And you can go check that out, Google that if you want. There's like 230 people have already seen it. So it's a really good sermon. You want to check that out. But anyway, I asked her, I said, Anna, were you named after the prophetess Anna? And she said, I don't know. I'll go, I'll ask my dad. Well, she asked her dad, and her dad told a kind of a bad dad joke. He goes, yes, 2,000 years after Anna, you were named after Anna, the prophetess. So those bad dad jokes. I know they're not really funny, but anyway, uh, the, there's puns, you know. Yes, you were named after him, not directly. But anyway, all that to say, if you read the Bible closely, you'll see, of course, there are many prophets like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Micah, Malachi. But there are prophetesses, female prophets, like Anna in Luke chapter 2. If you go to Acts chapter 21, you'll see that the uh, daughters of Philip are prophetesses. Uh, they say prophesy God's word. But the most famous prophetess is the one that Kim and the kids just talked about was, was Deborah. Uh, she was a judge, as, as we read in Judges chapter 4. So uh, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you know, we've been kind of taking our journey through Joshua. Well, after Joshua is the book of Judges. So I would encourage you to turn to Judges chapter 4, uh, beginning with verse 1. Judges chapter 4, beginning with verse 1. But before we read God's word, let's call upon his spirit to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as you pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you, Lord, for your inspired word. We thank you, Lord, that you inspired the writers of scripture to put pen to parchment that we might have your written word today. God, we pray that as you read this powerful story of Deborah, the prophetess, the judge of Israel, that you might speak afresh and anew to us, that we might hear from you. Oh, Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Judges chapter 4, beginning with verse 1, listen to God's word. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud, died. I want to pause here just for a moment. So just to kind of put this text within its greater scriptural context, you may remember last week in Joshua 24, we were talking about the fact that Joshua, who had been the leader of the people of Israel, who courageously led them into the promised land after Moses had died, in Joshua chapter 24, he offers a a challenge to the people of Israel and to us today. He says, choose this day whom you will serve, but as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. As we talked about last week, Joshua reminds them of how God had been faithful to deliver them time and time again and how they should obviously trust the Lord. And so if you read Joshua 24, everyone says in Israel, yeah, I'm going to trust the Lord. I'm going to trust the Lord. But as you begin to read Judges, you see that, well, the Israelites have a pretty bad habit. Yeah, they might have trusted the Lord for a little while, but then as they begin to settle into this promised land with different tribes, with different foreign gods and different idols, they begin to chase after these foreign gods and these foreign idols. And God gives them over to their idolatry, and he actually allows these foreign tribes to then to persecute the Israelites, to to plunder them, to steal from them. And and so in desperation, the Israelites will cry out to God, say, Lord, help us. Even though we've been unfaithful, would you please help us? And God, in his mercy, grace, and provision, would raise up a judge. Now, a judge back then was like a charismatic figure filled with the Holy Spirit who, who would help lead the people of God to help overcome their oppressors. And the first judge we read about is is a guy named Othniel. And Othniel helps lead the people of Israel. 
And then what happens, Othniel does this great work, and the people begin to follow God again, but then Othniel dies. And after Othniel dies, the people of Israel begin to turn to these foreign gods again, and, and again, God allows them to be conquered and plundered, and they cry out to God in desperation, and so then God raises up a new judge, Ehud. Now, I've always remembered Ehud because Ehud was left-handed, and I'm left-handed. There are not many left-handed. In fact, I love Phil Mickelson as a golfer because he's left-handed. There just aren't many of us left-handed people. In fact, I remember when I played basketball in high school. Uh, when you play basketball, they always tell you to, uh, you know, when you're defending someone, try to force them to go left, right, because most people can't dribble as well. They're left. And I remember we would play these games. We'd be playing Abilene High, and the Abilene High coach would be yelling, you know, real loud, and he'd say, make him use his left hand. I'd be like, yes, please do. <laughs> so I'd drive left and make a layup, and the guy's like, I think he's left-handed, you know, and and, and they didn't expect Ehud to be left-handed either, right? And so if you read the story, what Ehud does is with his left hand, he takes a dagger and he kills the king of Moab. The king of Moab did not see that one coming. In fact, it's interesting, if you read about these judges, you'll find that they're often the most unlikely of characters. Ehud was left-handed. He was a Benjamite, which is the smallest tribe in the tribe of Israel. And now in Judges chapter 4, God's going to call a woman of all people to be the judge, to be the prophetess, to be the foremost authority to God's people to let them hear what God has to say to God's people at that time. People probably didn't expect Deborah to be the great judge that she was. And there are three things that makes Deborah one of the best judges in the history of Israel. To see what those three things are, let's keep reading our text. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. After Ehud died, and the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Harosheth, Hagoyim. And then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help, for he had 900 chariots of iron, and he oppressed the people of Israel cruelly for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lepidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, Go, gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river, Kishon, with its chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Barak said to her, If you will go with me, I will go, but if you will not go with me, I will not go. And she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the road on which you are going will not lead to your glory. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kedesh. And Barak called out Zebulun and Naphtali to Kedesh. And 10,000 men went up at his heels. And Deborah went up with him. Now Haber the Canaanite had separated from the Canaanites, the descendants of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as Oak in Zananim, which is near Kedesh. When Sisera was told that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera called out all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the men who were with him from Harasheth Hagayim to the river of Kishon. Then, and Deborah said to Barak, Up, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hand. Does not the Lord go out before you? So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. And the Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army before Barak by the edge of the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled away on foot. And Barak pursued the chariots, the army, to Hesherath Hagayim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. But Sisera fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Canaanite. 
for th there was peace between Jabin and the king of Hazor and the house of Haber the Kenite. And Jael came out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my lord, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. So he turned aside to her to the tent, and she covered him with a rug. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. So she opened a skin of milk and gave him a drink and covered him. And he said to her, Stand at the opening of the tent, and if any man comes out and asks you, Is anyone here? Say no. But Jael, the wife of Haber, took a tent peg and took a hammer in her hand. Then she went softly to him and drove the peg into his temple until it went down into the ground while he was lying fast asleep from weariness. So he died. Do you think? <laughs> she just put a tent peg through his temple. So he died. And behold, as Barak was pursuing Sisera, Jael went out to meet him and said to him, Come, and I will show you the man whom you are seeking. So he went into her tent, and there lay Sisera dead, with a tent peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the people of Israel. And the hand of the people of Israel pressed harder and harder against Jabin, the king of Canaan, until they destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us, the grass withers and the flower fades. But the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You know, as I've spent time with this text, um, and I know Barack Obama spells his name differently. It's B-R-A-C-K, and this is Barack, B-A-R-A-K. But I've got to think, did the mother of Barack Obama know how kind of a squirrely character Barack was? I mean, he's not the most courageous of warriors, right? I, I, I mean, look at the scene. Here's Deborah, a prophetess, right, a female judge, not a warrior, coming to Barak and said, God has told me, has he not told you to go and fight? And, and he's going to deliver you. God's going to give you the victory. You just got to go. And what does Barak say? Barak? He says, well, if you go with me, I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Not really an example of courage, is it? Not, not the model for us of how we want to courageously follow the call of God, is it? It's kind of interesting uh, looking at this text and just thinking about Barak. What was it that Barak made sure he, he insisted that Deborah come with him, that he wasn't going to fight unless Deborah was with him? Why is it that he insisted that Deborah be with him if he was going to go into the battlefield? Well, Brock, to his credit, knew that Deborah had something that he didn't have. Deborah had a very close relationship with the Lord. That's the first thing that makes Deborah such an incredible judge. She has a very close relationship with the Lord, a relationship that's so close that she can hear the word of God and know how to share that word with others. Do you have the kind of relationship with the Lord today where you, where you hear the word of the Lord, where you hear God speak to you? You know, if you were with us uh, in January, we talked about the Holy Spirit and the role that the Holy Spirit now plays in all of our lives today. And we talked about how, you know, Jesus tells us that he's going to send his Holy Spirit, and he's going to remind us of everything that he said. He says this in the Gospel of John. And we, and we know from Scripture that the Holy Spirit has given each one of us different spiritual gifts. You know, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12 gives this wonderful list of different spiritual gifts. And God has gifted each one of us by his Spirit. In fact, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 6 that the Holy Spirit now dwells within us, that our body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so we've always got the Holy Spirit guiding us and leading us in all truth. But the question is, are we listening to what the Holy Spirit has to say? I love what Kim pointed out. You know, there's lots of different ways God can communicate to us. He can communicate to dreams and, and, and uh, through open doors. But the way that God speaks most clearly to us today is the word that the Holy Spirit inspired. 
For Paul writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 to 17, that all Scripture is God-breathed. They have panoustos. Panuo, that's spirit, breathe, right? Breath, spirit, same word in Greek, panuo. Uh, so the, all Scripture is God-breathed. They're inspired by the Spirit. And he's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, that the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. If we want to hear... God's word. If we want to have the kind of relationship that Deborah had, where she could clearly hear the word of God, even though Barak couldn't hear it, but Deborah could, if we want to have that kind of relationship with God, we've got to spend time with God every day, specifically reading his word. You know, I was in a, a Bible study uh, on Tuesday morning with a group of guys, and we were taught from this church, and we were just talking about, you know, how we live our life out of habits. For instance, um, you know, I have the, the habit now of, of flossing my teeth. I didn't always have that habit, but now I have that habit. Because when I was in my early 20s, I went to the dentist, and uh, she told me, you know, my gums were bleeding as she was cleaning my teeth. She said, you know, you've got the beginning stages of gingivitis. And I was like, well, what's that? And then she showed me this, like, really nasty picture of bad gingivitis, and it scared me straight. And I said, oh, I can't have that. And she said, yeah, you've got to floss every day, you know, after you brush. And I said, okay, I'll, I'll floss every day. And now I do it without, without thinking. Well, if we want to build the habit of, of, of reading and meditating on God's word, you know, daily, it's, it's probably a good idea if it's the first thing we do when we wake up. What's the first thing you do when you wake up? For me, honestly, I pick up my phone because it's my alarm clock, right? So it wakes me up and I, I pick it up. Now, prior to my sabbatical, my habit was I'd pick up my phone and then I would quickly text my, look at my text messages to see if I had any text messages. I'd look at any emails, if I had any emails. I'd read Fox News and CNN News and see if I could hear any good news, you know, in that. And, and then I would check the weather and, and then I would check, you know, what's going on with uh, my favorite sports teams. I'd check ESPN and I'd check all kinds of things, Facebook. I'd look at all kinds of stuff, you know. But during my sabbatical, I read a book by Craig Groeschel. It's called How to Win the War in Your Mind, Winning the War in Your Mind. It's a really good book. It's on Philippians 4.8. It's kind of an exposition of that text where Paul says, whatever is right, whatever is good, think on these things. That what we think helps shape how we live. And so he had the encouragement of, of building a habit of, of reading God's word first thing. And so as John Calvin, the founder of the Presbyterian Church, once said, you know, we want the scriptures to be the, the lens through which we see the world. And so I, I've developed a habit. I've changed it just a little bit. Now, I still, first thing, I, I pick up the phone because it's my alarm, right? I turn it off. But then I go to the Version app, which is a Bible app. It's free. And I read a chapter of Scripture. Now, if you've never read the Bible before, I would encourage you to begin with the Gospel of Mark. It's only 16 chapters. It's the first Gospel written. It tells you the story of Jesus. After you read the Gospel of Mark, then read Matthew, then read Luke, and then read John. And we need to begin our Bible reading with the Gospels because, well, in the Gospel of John, John says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh. Jesus is the Word of God, the living Word of God, the ultimate revelation to us of who God is and who God's calling us to be. And so we should read all of the Bible through the lens of Jesus. He helps us understand what these Ten Commandments really mean. He helps us understand the book of Leviticus. Because a lot of people say, yeah, I'm going to read the Bible, and they start in Genesis, right? And they're, they're doing great because Genesis is a pretty exciting book with lots of cool stories. Then they get to Exodus, and that's a pretty good book with lots of cool stories. But then you get to Leviticus, and it's like stop sign, whoa, yield, you know, merge off the road or something. Because it's, it's just so filled with all these different descriptions of animal sacrifices and different rituals. And, and it's just really hard to get much out of that until you realize that all of it's pointing to Jesus, the perfect sacrifice. From the Gospel of John, when John the Baptist sees Jesus, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. 
Jesus, who's fully God and fully man, who was without sin, as the scriptures tell us, became sin for us when he died on a cross as the perfect atoning sacrifice for our sins. As Jesus says in John 19, at the very end, uh, with his final words on the cross, he says, it is finished. Our sins have been atoned for by what Christ did on the cross for us. Then the third day, Jesus rose again, conquering both sin and death on our behalf, so we might know with full assurance that we have the gift of eternal life, the gift of a new life in him, and that Jesus is, in fact, who he said he was, that his resurrection is proof positive that he is the Son of God, the great I Am, the Savior of the world. Amen? And so we've got to read the Bible through the lens of Jesus. And if we will take time, I promise you, if you'll take time and, and read the Bible every day, read and meditate and pray on it, you'll grow in your relationship with God. So as you encounter different circumstances, you're going to hear the Word of God come back to mind and let you know what you're supposed to do in those situations. Yes, Brock knew he needed Deborah with him in the battlefield because Deborah had something he didn't have. Deborah had a very close relationship with the Lord. And he knew that Deborah had a close relationship with the Lord because he had seen how she'd been using her, courageously using her gifts of prophecy and, and leadership and wisdom and discernment and even encouragement as she was helping others do the will of God here on earth as it is in heaven. It's the first thing that Deborah has is she has a, an intimate relationship with the Lord. The second thing that we should all learn from Deborah is that she courageously used her gifts that God had given to her. What do I mean by that? Let's look again at the text and what it says about her in verse 4 and 5. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, was judging Israel at the time. She used to sit under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. Now the Hebrew word for judgment there is shafat, shafat. And it's the same word that's used in Exodus chapter 18, verses 15 to 16, to describe how Moses would, would offer judgment or make decisions, decide what needed to happen for the people of God. Listen to that text. And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God, when they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide, shafat, between one person or another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. So just as Moses was a, a judge and a prophet for the people of Israel, Deborah is now that same judge, that, a prophet, helping them know what God's will is for them as they seek wisdom, as they seek discernment, as they seek to know what is it that God would have me do. And I, and I say that she was courageous in using her gifts because well, she lived in a patriarchal society where, where it was male-dominated. And women were supposed to really just stay at home. They really weren't supposed to speak. They were supposed to be silent. And I'm pretty sure the first time that Deborah began to speak out and prophesy, there was probably a misogynist in the group saying, hey, what's Deborah doing? She should be silent. You know, she, what is she doing? She should be in the kitchen and stay at home. Who is she to speak a word of God? Well, it was God who called her. It was God who had equipped her. And notice that it says she was, well, she was married to Lapidoth. Now, this is the only time Lapidoth is mentioned. We don't know a lot about Lapidoth, but I'm pretty sure that Lapidoth was a, was a pretty good husband. How do I know that? Because Lapidoth could see that his wife had a, an intimate relationship with the Lord. Lapidoth could see that she had gifts of, of discernment and wisdom and even prophecy and encouragement and, and, and even leadership. And he doesn't insist on the cultural norm of saying, no, you must stay home and be silent. No, what does he do? He lets her go 
out in the wilderness where people would travel for miles. And notice that it's not just women and children who come to hear what Deborah has to say. It says in the text, the people of Israel, men, women, children, the people of Israel came up to her for judgment. She didn't just teach the the women and the children. She spoke God's word to anyone who was willing to listen. She was the utmost authority for what God had to say to God's people at that time. And her husband, Lapidus, to his credit, saw that she had these gifts. And so he let her go out of the house and, and go do what she was called to do. Husbands, wives, are we encouraging our spouses to use their God-given gifts in ministry today? Because Scripture is real clear that each one of us has been given different spiritual gifts that God wants us to use to help do the work of, of God's kingdom. You know, I'll never forget the, uh, the, uh, the day where I said, Sarah Browning is the woman I've got to marry. Uh, we had known each other for four years as friends. We'd been on several dates, and we started dating seriously or exclusively uh, just a few months before I went off to seminary. And as we were, I was getting ready to go to seminary, you know, I was a little nervous because, uh, you know, yes, I went to Trinity University uh, in San Antonio, but my degree is in economics, business, finance with a minor in Spanish. And I had only taken one religion course in all of undergrad, and it was called Ethical Issues and Religious Perspectives. And it was really more of an ethics course. It was about the ethics of the Bible, not necessarily an overview of all that Bible taught. So I had never really taken a, a formal Bible class before, yet here I am going off to seminary, and I was working for an accounting firm at the time. So I was like, I can tell people what things cost and how to audit that, but I don't know much about, I mean, do I, am I ready for Princeton Seminary? It's like the first Presbyterian seminary in the country. It's a globally famous uh, seminary, great school. And I was a little nervous. I said, man, I'm really nervous about this, Sarah. I'm not sure I'm ready for Princeton Seminary. And she held my hand and looked me in the eyes and said, Howard, you have the gift of teaching and preaching. I've heard you lead Bible studies. I've seen you teach Sunday school class. You have knowledge. God is calling you to preach the word of God. He wants you to go to Princeton Seminary. That's the woman for me. If I had a ring in my pocket, I'd have pulled it out, but I didn't. So I had to wait a few months to go get one. But I was so excited. I mean, that's what we need. We, and one of my great joys in life today is that I'm able to encourage my wife, Sarah, first following God's call to be a mother at our home, but now to, to work as a, as a grants uh, programs officer at Emerald Area Foundation where she helps give money away to help nonprofits do what God's calling them to do. Are we encouraging one another to use our God-given gifts in ministry today? I'm grateful that we're a part of a denomination that has as one of its core values egalitarian ministry. And this is how ECO talks about it. ECO value, egalitarian ministry. We believe in unleashing the ministry gifts of women, men, and every ethnic group. We want everyone as a part of our denomination to use their God-given gifts for ministry. And that's why I'm so excited that Anna uh, is, is seeking ordination within our denomination. And she, she told me that when she was uh, in college, she took a spiritual gifts survey. And if you don't know what your spiritual gifts are, you can find a survey online. Lifeway Christian Resource has a good one. You can just fill out the survey, and it'll kind of give you some ideas of what your gifts may be. And she took out a survey when she was in college, and the number one gift was teaching. Teaching. And so she said, well, I'm not sure how I'm going to use that. But thanks be to God, she continued to try to use that gift whenever she could, first in the A&O house, and, and then she preached and on July 11th. If you didn't get to see that sermon, you should download it. Just like 230 views. Add a few more to that. That'd be great. I joked with her. I said, man, you had 230 views. I had like 60 views last week. Man, you're killing it. You're awesome. But I'm glad we're the kind of denomination that says, hey, you have gifts in ministry. I want you to use that gift. And I'm grateful my kids are able to sit under her teaching, but she's seeking ordination in our denomination so that she may one day be, be a preacher of her own and have her own church and be able to lead God's people to know the truth of God's word. Yes, Deborah 
was a great judge because she had an intimate relationship with the Lord, and she was courageously using her gifts in ministry, encouraging others to do the same. Notice that that's what she's doing for Barak. She's telling Barak, Has not the Lord, the God of Israel, commanded you, go gather your men at Mount Tabor, taking 10,000 from the people of Naphtali and the people of Zebulun, and I will draw out Sisera, the general of Jabin's army, to meet you by the river, Kishon, with his chariots and his troops, and I will give him into your hand. Has not God called you to do this? Brock, you can do this. Who are we encouraging to use their gifts in ministry today? Who are we coming alongside saying, no, you've got this. You can, God has gifted you. He wants you to use your gifts. Deborah was a great judge because she had an intimate relationship with the Lord, and she courageously sought to use those gifts. But she didn't do it for herself. She did it all for the glory of God. We don't have time today or right now, but if you, after the service, will go read Judges 5, the very next chapter, you'll see this beautiful song that Deborah and Barak sing to God a song of praise as they seek to give all the glory to God, knowing that the victory was won by God, not by them. It was the Lord who allowed them to overcome the 900 chariots of Sisera, which an infantry army would not usually beat 900 chariots, but they were able to do it because God was with them. Yes, as Presbyterians and as followers of Christ, we know that whatever we do, as we use our gifts in ministry, we want to do it all for the glory of God. In fact, at the Presbyterian Church, we have this great little Westminster Shorter Catechism. Uh, it's, it's the opening question is, what is the chief end of man? Or, or is like Rick Warren used to say, what's the purpose of life? Well, I'm going to ask the question. Let's all answer it together. What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. We didn't make that up. That comes from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31, where he says, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Deborah was a great judge. She was a fantastic judge because she had an intimate relationship with the Lord where she could hear God's word. She courageously used her gifts ultimately for the glory of God. May we seek to do the same. Please join me as we pray. Gracious and loving God, we thank you for the example of Deborah who was a great judge, a woman that we revere today as a woman of great faith who had an intimate relationship with you. Barak saw that. He knew he needed Deborah to be with him if he was going to be successful because Deborah could hear your word. Lord, we thank you that you have now given us your written word, that we might hear your word ourselves. Help us to spend the time we need each and every day in your word, to, to grow in the knowledge of your word, to live out that habit of, of reading your word, and meditating on your word, praying your word. And also, Lord, help us to use our gifts that you've given to us. You've listed some gifts in 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12. Help us to discover what our gifts are and help us to use those gifts and help us to encourage others to use their gifts all to the glory of your name. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ. And all God's people said, Amen.